I want to start again, I want to say a happy Mother's Day. And uh, I'll tell you, one of the things that I always struggle with on Mother's Day is I'm, there's a tension for me uh, in that we want to rightly honor our mothers. I think that's especially in a society where that role is continuing to be devalued. We want to elevate that rightly. But I recognize that in doing so, that the reality of that is that some of you, some of you don't come at Mother's Day and you're not happy and excited about it. The reality is some of you, this is, this is kind of a brutal day uh, for you. And so, so I try to hold intention uh, both sides of this. And so maybe, um, let, 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 let's do this. Let's, let's honor moms for a moment and then we'll come and we'll talk at, at these items for a moment. And then we'll get to the book of Acts. But uh, at the expense of not having everyone who's a mom stand up or things like that, I think that sometimes can uh, be more damaging than it is good. John, I'm getting a little feedback up here. I don't know if you're getting that or not. If you could uh, turn me down a little bit, I'd appreciate that. But uh, So here, here's what I want to do to, to honor moms. Uh, let's start with this. I want to honor the woman who's been mothering longer uh, than anyone else in here. So let's, let's do this. If you've been mothering for more than, how about 40 years why don't you stand up? More than 40 years. Anyone mothering more than 40 years? Okay. Okay, quite a few of you. Okay, we're going to we have to whittle them down here. I'll resist the urge to tell you that you could be my mother. Okay. How about 50? How many of you have been doing it for 50 years? Okay, still, still a couple of you. Carol, you forgot, huh? 55? Ooh, okay, here we go, 60. Six, okay, hold on, stand back up. You three stand back up. All right. 59, 58, 57. Uh-oh, we're going to have a tie. 56. Are you guys all, do we not know how old our oldest child is? Or? <laughs> okay, how, how old, how old? 58, okay. 57? 56. All right, Leona. Leona, you're our winner. So I have, there's not much. It's, it's also not nothing. It's also not counseling, though I'm sure after 58 years of parenting, that's probably what you want. But thank you for that. All right, now let's go the other direction. Newest mom. Newest mom. This one's, this one's a little bit more exciting. Partly because they just don't know yet what they're in for, right? Um, and, and if there's someone in the cry room, right, sometimes that's where some of our newer parents tend to, to gather. Uh, I want you all to come out if, some, if any of you are in there. Okay, uh, let's say parenting less than 18 months. Anyone with a child under 18 months? Okay. One. Anyone in the cry room want to? Okay, well, yeah, okay. Anyone in the cry room in there? Okay, I see, I see someone coming out. Okay, under a year? Okay, how, how old is your baby? Eight months. Okay, Crystal, you're definitely going to win this. How old is Nathan? Six weeks. Congratulations. So here you go. This is for you. A little bit different than a year ago, isn't it? Right. Praise Jesus for his faithfulness in your life. That's not much, but that is a little bit of caffeine, but it ain't going to help. Trust me. So, so here, here's the deal. Here's the deal, right? We, we want to honor moms and we want to we elevate moms. Let me come to the other side here for just a moment and then we'll get to the book of Acts. For some of you, today's really, really painful. Uh, I'm thinking of some good friends of ours uh, that this is the first Mother's Day where they don't have their mom with them. 
Uh, others of you uh, have had the, uh, what I think is probably the most difficult thing, the side of eternity. Some of you have buried a child of yours. Uh, some of you have experienced uh, miscarriage. Uh, some of you have very, very fractured relationships with your children. Um, some of you, uh, for whatever reason, God has saw fit to not allow you to have children to this point. Some of you are single and you're wondering, am I even going to have the chance at having children? So trust me, trust me, trust me when I say I understand for some of you today is a really, really painful day. It's a very difficult day. That's not lost on us, okay? So this week, Pastor Randy and I were meeting. We meet every week, and we were talking about the service, and I just said, I said, man, I'm really struggling. How do we do this? How do we honor moms uh, without destroying those or, or undercutting those who find this to be really, really painful? I think what Pastor Randy said was incredibly profound. He said, Mike, we, we tell them the same thing. Go, what are you talking about, man? He goes, we tell the moms who find themselves in a very difficult, very hard place, we tell them to put their trust and their hope in Jesus Christ. I said, okay, well, I think I know where you're going with this on the other side. And he said, yeah, right? We tell those who find themselves in the most enviable of positions uh, that are moms that it's true for them as well. And that for all of you, wherever you find yourself, wherever God has you this particular day in respect to mothering and motherhood and things of that nature, I would exhort you and encourage you to simply put your hope in Jesus as your source of security and trust and foundation. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. And then we're going to get into God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you for moms. God, we thank you that uh, part of the whole of God's image is tied uh, to, to, to moms. That that's, not, that that's not some distinct, absent part. That, that, that's a part of how you function as God, and that's part of the ways that we, we model that and we image that, and so we thank you for that. God, in the ways that, ha- that has been broken and fractured and distorted and lost in our society, we grieve. God, we grieve and we mourn and we walk with those who find today not to be a day of celebration and joy, but of a day of pain and struggle and difficulty. God, we pray that in all things that you would be honored and lifted high. And God, as Brian was praying a moment ago, speaking about the privilege that it is to open your word and to let your word speak to us, God, we pray that now that you would do that, that you would come that as we sang, that you would warn, that you would console, that you would encourage, that you would draw, that you would convict, God, whatever it is that you long to do in our lives, that you would do that now amongst your people. God, not only for us, but pray for Justin Edgar as he pastors Crossroads Fellowship. I pray for Pastor Justin that you'd be with him as he's preaching right now, that you would make much of Um, what you're doing in his life, that you would bring about um, a a great power, a great movement of your spirit by by your power in the lives of those people. And Jesus, that you'd be lifted high uh, in all that uh, is done at Crossroads. And God, now as we look at uh, the book of Acts in summary and totality, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would allow us to hold on to uh, some of these truths in a way that uh, brings great glory and honor to you. Uh, So we love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, get your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Acts. And as as promised, uh, uh, an Acts remix, an Acts review uh, for us here. And uh, so as we've moved through over the last six, seven months... Uh, really moving through the, on the ground level, through the weeds, through the trees of the book of Acts. Uh, this morning we'll ascend to uh, the 35,000 foot view 
in the book of Acts and, and, and look at it in totality. And uh, really, uh, in doing so, our desire is to grab some of the, uh, the, the highlights, the, uh, the, the, the major themes, and allow that to prompt and push us forward in what God has for us. And of course, the, the sermon series we entitled Total Church... And the idea that this morning that we would grab, and this certainly is not exhaustive of the major themes in, of the book of Acts, but that we would grab some of these items and, and help us to be a total church and be people of a total church. And so just maybe by way of introduction and by, by way of a refresher, as we've spent a number of months in the book of Acts, let me briefly review uh, what happened in the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, Jesus tells us that he's going to depart and he's going to ascend into heaven. He tells the disciples to wait for the Spirit. Of course, there it's where he says in verse 8, really I think the, the key verse to the whole of the book of Acts, he tells the disciples this, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the rest of the book of Acts essentially chronicles how that unfolds uh, over the coming months and years uh, in the life or in the, in the early life uh, of the church. In Acts 2, we have uh, the Spirit comes. We have Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We have 2,000 people uh, that get saved. And we have that first description of the early church at the end of chapter 2. In chapters 3 through 5, Peter and John heal that guy as they're going into the temple. And this really begins to highlight the tension and conflict between uh, the, the, the early church and the religious leaders and, and the, the Jewish community that, that runs throughout the whole of the book of Acts. Uh, in chapter 6, we turn our attention away specifically from uh, the apostles. And we see uh, uh, specifically there in chapter 6 and 7, Stephen and his proclamation of Jesus Christ. Of course, that culminates in him being stoned. And then at the end of that account, we're introduced to a guy named Saul. Uh, and then in chapter 8, uh, we have Philip. And this is pretty prominent. He heads to Samaria. We see the gospel going to Samaria. Uh, Philip going down there both with Simon the magician and then later uh, the gospel, the first hint of the gospel going out uh, to the ends of the earth with uh, Philip's engagement with the Ethiopian eunuch Chapter 9, this guy named Saul uh, comes to saving faith. Of course, Saul later becomes Paul. And the second half of the book is fixated on um, the Spirit's work in and through him. Chapters 10 and 11 chronicles how the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Remember Peter and his vision shows up at Cornelius' house. Uh, kind of a crazy uh, story for all of them. And uh, chapter 12, James is martyred. Uh, Peter miraculously escapes from prison. And then starting in chapter 13, the focus moves away from Peter uh, onto this guy named Paul. Uh, from 13 through 20, we have Paul's various missionary journeys, with the exception of the Jerusalem Council there in chapter 15. And then in chapter, one through, or chapter 21 through 28, which we've looked at the last few weeks, uh, Paul's journey from Caesarea ultimately to Rome and the subsequent trials, things of that nature. So kind of brief, generic umbrella overview of the book of Acts where we've been the last six, seven months. And as we press into these and really the, the heart of what God's getting at in the book of Acts, our desire here this morning isn't simply to revisit some highlights, uh, but to, <clears throat> to give us some very tangible items that we can hold on to, some very real, uh, concrete uh, themes that God draws out in this book that, that push us uh, to, to loving Jesus more, to, to loving the church more, that has great impact in our life, things of that nature. And so that's really the desire and the intent uh, for this morning. The way that we'll frame that is this notion of total church what total church looks like, what it's about, what it requires from us. 
Total church, you could use the term gospel community in some respects. I think they're interchangeable. And at times I'll use them interchangeably here this morning. But see, the reality is, the reality is that as people, as believers especially, the idea of finding um, true legitimate gospel community is highly, highly appealing to us. It's almost like this, this magical notion that there's this uh, distinct group of people who are uh, just incredibly righteous and, and the, the, the fullest of honesty and grace and truth and compassion and mercy and they just they, they do everything perfectly. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I want to find that group of people. I want to be with those people. That's the community I want to share my life with. And my encouragement to you would be good luck finding them. Okay, because we're all broken, fallen sinners. But more than simply just going and looking for that, see, I think part of what the scriptures call us to do and be is not to go find it, but it's to be that. It's that we would be gospel community. Not like, well, I'm just going to go find a group. If you're just looking for a group and not working on becoming part of that group, you're going to ruin it when you get there. All right? And so spare everyone uh, the, the misery in that. It's us becoming gospel community. It's us becoming total church. And we have to be that community. Total church described or defined by four things here this morning. And really, we're going to treat the book of Acts in summary. So we'll jump around uh, from a number of, or through a number of different uh, places here this morning. Here's the first, first item. Total church, gospel community, what, what do we see? How is it described or defined? It's this. It's that God's word drives all that we do. It's that God's word drives all that we do. Now, now, when I say God's word, in my mind, I have both word and prayer. Okay, They're both the voice of God. And we see both of these highlighted in the book of Acts. But I want to focus more in on the written word uh, of God here this morning, though both are very much prominently displayed in the book of Acts. God's word drives all that we do. Let's start with this thought. The Word of God does the work of God through the Spirit of God. Okay? The Word of God will do the work of God through the Spirit of God. By God's grace, that's happening right now in all of our lives. As we begin to see the truth of God's Word unfolded, it begins, God's Spirit begins to work within us. And repeatedly, as we move through the book of Acts, time and again, if there was a dispute, if there was uncertainty on an issue, if they were divided on a matter, it was the Word of God that determined the course of action for that. That was ultimately what drove them, that moved them, that pushed them to the ultimate decision. It was, what does God's word have to say? And if you go to Acts 2 and you look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, really what Peter is doing is he's taking a number of Old Testament passages and he's giving commentary and clarity on those specific verses as to this is what God is saying to us. This is what God is drawing us to. This is how he's moving and working within us. If you go to the end of Acts chapter 2, it tells us that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. In its purest sense, that was probably the, the life and the ministry of Christ. In a broader sense, it was the life and the ministry of Christ, the Old Testament, and what would become significant portions of the New Testament. Remember in Acts 5, at the end of uh, Peter and John with the whole religious uh, council or the, the religious leaders and the back and forth? And they kept saying, listen, you've got to quit saying the name. Just quit talking about that Jesus guy. Quit saying things about him. Be done with him. We don't want anything to do with him. And in verse 29, they say, we must obey. Tell me. God rather than men. See, it's the word of God. God told us something. God, God said something to us here. And so it doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what you or I say. God told us, therefore, that's what's authoritative and that's what we're going to do. It's the word of God that's driving what they're doing. Right, Stephen, 
In Acts 6 and 7, his entire proclamation is a recounting of the Old Testament. Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, it's the book of Isaiah that leads this man to salvation. Paul, when he would go on his missionary journeys, would reason, would expound, would explain from the scriptures. I think maybe one of the best examples of this truth is the Jerusalem Council. Remember that? They're trying, what do we do with the Gentiles? And, and, and how do we fold them in? And what do we do with our Jewish roots and heritage? And how do we bring this together? And people are sharing different things. And then finally, James stands up and he quotes Amos 9. And that's the end of the conversation. They write a letter and they're done. It's kind of back and forth, back and forth. Hey, Amos told us this. Boom, done. All right, send it out. See, it's because the word of God is driving everything that they're doing. The word of God drives all that we do. Here's the point. In total church, in gospel community, God's word and God's word alone has to be, has to, has to, has to be the authority. It's not what you and I like. It's not what we prefer. It's not what's palatable. It's not what's accommodating. It's not what we think to be practical. It's what God has told us. That is what drives us. That is what moves us. That is what propels us. Because God says it, therefore, that's true. That has to be the way that you and I live our lives. Now, ironically, that will also be what's best for you and I. That doesn't mean that it'll be most convenient or most ideal, but it will no doubt be the best for us. But let me just ask you this. Consider, consider in your life, just between yourself and the Lord right now, loved ones, What is it, what is it that drives what you do? What is the ultimate arbiter in your life when there's a distinction, when there's um, a, 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 a disagreement, when there's a debate, when I'm not sure, when there's uncertainty, when there's doubt? What drives the decision making process? What leads me to a conclusion? Is it what I like? Is it what I prefer? Is it what I find to be um, most practical? Or is it what God Himself has told us? Is it his word that's driving this? See, because for far too many of us, right, it's, well, this worked here. Or Mike, you don't know my spouse, okay? You don't know how difficult things will be in the home if I don't do it this way. Well, maybe that's true, but I can tell you how difficult things are going to be in eternity if you don't do it his way, all right? And your spouse might seem like she's all-knowing or he's all-encompassing. I'm just telling you, they're not God Almighty, Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's this particular drive that I want more of, blank. Okay, what is it that drives what we do? In ministry and home and work and family and community and all things, God's word should drive what we do, how we think, speak, act, treat others, and on and on and on we could go. That is a hallmark right here, loved ones. This is, you want to know where a person's at, you want to know where a community's at, you want to know what they really think about God, and you want to know what they think about the gospel, you want to know what they think about um, following Jesus, just ask them what they think about his word. I'll tell you everything you need to know. Total church, God's word drives all that we do. Here's the second thing. Second thing, total church preaches and lives the gospel both preaches the gospel and lives the gospel. Of course, this, this concept of preaching is bore right out of Acts 1.8. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You're going to communicate some things. You're going to share some things. You're going to proclaim some things. You're going to make some things known. 
But it's not just about speaking these things. Right? They also live the gospel. It's what we see demonstrated throughout their lives. Walt Lauer this morning, we were talking before the service and he was recounting for me an event that took place and he was telling me about a guy who, um, this one guy was being so obnoxious in his actions that the gentleman that he was attempting to communicate with, he said, your actions are so loud, I cannot hear what you're saying. See, sometimes, sometimes that, that, that works really well for us if our actions speak loudly in the positive sense of who Christ has called us to be. Now, no doubt all of us can think of plenty of times where that has backfired on us, where our actions absolutely trump everything that we're attempting to say or communicate into the lives of people. Right? But in gospel community, in total church, we see a preaching and a living of the gospel. Now, it's no surprise, we shouldn't be surprised at all that we see them preaching the gospel a lot in the book of Acts. That was the commission that they were given. I mean, like from the very beginning, hey, go do this. This is what you're going to do. So that shouldn't surprise us. The gospel, right, as, as, they were, as it was handed to them, the, the, they're to be witnesses, to share the message. One of the ways when I look at this or I see this, certainly framed by my experience in my life, is, is this notion of being an ambassador or being a diplomat. And when Becky and I lived in Vienna, we were around this all the time. You had world dignitaries that would come from all over the world. They would send ambassadors or, or diplomats or things of that nature to come and communicate on behalf of whether it be the king or the president or the chancellor or whatever country they were coming from and whoever their leader is. They would come and communicate on behalf of that person or that nation. And there was, there was one particular time, I couldn't remember, I don't know if he was Jordanian or Saudi or there was some mi- Middle Eastern country and they had sent this, this high-ranking ambassador And it was this huge, I mean, this huge deal that this individual was here. And I remember talking with one of the individuals that their students were at our school. He worked for the UN. He was, he was a high up diplomat. And and I said, listen, I don't get it. Why such a big deal for this guy? It's not like he's the king. It's not like he's the president. And this gentleman looked at me and he goes, well, you're right. He's not the king. He's not the president, but he speaks on behalf of the king. And so in that, he is the mouthpiece for the king. That's why it's such a big deal. See, that's the reality for you and I as believers. We're not Jesus. We're not the king. We don't have ultimate authority, but we do speak on his behalf. The very words of the king could be found on your lips and on mine because God has given us his word, right, as we just talked about. And so this notion of preaching and living the gospel and so in gospel community, the gospel is readily present in that community, right? It's not just a story or a remedy or for people who don't know Jesus. It's constantly being spoken into the hearts and lives of those who find themselves in the community. Right again, Acts 2, Peter at Pentecost, preaching the gospel. Acts 3, Peter and John are preaching the gospel at the temple. Acts 4 and 5, Peter and John are preaching the gospel before the council and the religious leaders. Acts 7, Stephen is preaching to the religious leaders. Do you see a theme developing? In all of those cases, in the early part of the book of Acts, the gospel is not simply being preached to those who don't know Jesus or who are far from God or have no concept of him. It's being preached to the people who supposedly are closest to him. It's a both and. That the the gospel is not only for uh, those who are far from God. The gospel is equally important, equally necessary for those who are close to him. And oftentimes... Oftentimes we'll reduce the gospel into this. Um, sometimes we'll write, we'll package it as this cute little story and like, hey, here's how you get saved. 
and here's how you get the fire insurance, and here's how you get Jesus to love you, and then you can just go and do uh, your own thing. And yet, as believers, I would contend that um, maybe in some respects we need the gospel more than non-believers. That because it's our source of hope and identity and security and so many other things, we desperately, desperately need it. Let me try to illustrate. Um, church is a great place to be honest, amen? Okay, uh, so show of hands, and uh, you might want to participate, otherwise you might get singled out here, uh, but uh, that's fair warning, okay? Uh, how many of you raise your hand if you still need God's grace in your life? Raise your hand if you still need God's grace, right? Okay, everyone's like, I'm not going to get suckered into this, right? <laughs> everyone's got their hand up, which is good, because if you didn't raise your hand, what I would say is you've just proved the point that you need God's grace to reveal to you that you need God's grace. See, we all desperately need it. We still need God's grace. I need God's grace in my life today. I know that I do. You need God's grace in your life today. I know that you do as well. See, that's the point. As believers, the the preaching of the gospel is not simply for those who are far from Jesus. Yes, that's very much a part of it. But part of preaching the gospel is for those like you and me who desperately need to be reminded of it. That I still need God's grace. One of the things, I've shared this before, but I'll share it again because I think it's appropriate here. One of the things, um, this might shock you, I'm not a perfect father, okay? That doesn't shock anybody in here. If you spent more than five minutes with me, you know very well I'm far from a perfect father, but I fail my kids. Um, In fact, far more often than I'd like to admit, but I fail my kids pretty regularly. And uh, one of the things, one of the things when I inevitably do that, I'll go to my kids and I'll uh, seek their forgiveness. But then one of the things I like to tell them is I'll say, hey, listen, daddy needs Jesus just like you need Jesus. And daddy needs the gospel just like you need the gospel. Because one of the things I want my kids to grow up knowing and believing is that you never outgrow that. You don't ever get to this point in your spiritual life where it's like, hey, I'm beyond needing the gospel. I'm beyond needing the grace of God in my life. And now I can go it alone because you don't ever get there. The only time you graduate from that is when you die Okay, well, that's not really a great option. Any other places? Yeah, one other place. Jesus comes back. Ooh, I'm going to go with that option. Okay, it's going to get a lot worse before he comes back. Dying might just be better, okay? Uh, so really, no, no good option at getting to the place before we graduate out of the gospel. We desperately need it. As followers of Jesus, we need it. Now, as, uh, for, for those who are far from God, they need it as well. And we see that uh, also playing out in the book of Acts. In Acts 8, we talked about Philip. Uh, with uh, Simon the magician in Samaria. We see uh, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 9, we see Saul, who later becomes Paul, uh, needing the gospel. Of course, he had a pretty special conversion, Jesus himself coming and and speaking to him. Chapter 10, Peter uh, at uh, Cornelius' home with a number of Gentiles. And then, of course, with Paul's missionary journey uh, in Acts 13 through about 20, where he's going to these different places, right, uh, for for non-believers. So the gospel is preached to the believer... Uh, because we never outgrow needing God's grace and it's preached to the non-believer because it's the only place, it's the only place that salvation and redemption is found in Jesus. And so we preach the gospel. How about living the gospel? What does that look like? Here's what I think it means. This is far from exhaustive, but here's four ways, four ways that we live the gospel in biblical community. Here's the first for Repentance for repentance. You might want to jot these down, loved ones, for repentance, right? To repent simply means to turn. Uh, In its most simple sense, it means to turn. In the biblical sense, it means to turn from sin and towards Jesus. 
right? For the believer and the non-believer. Right, for the non-believer, okay, that makes sense. I have to turn from sin and towards Jesus. That's the starting point. That's the entry point into salvation. How about believers? Anyone in here still need to repent from time to time? Yeah, that happens often in my life. Probably all of us, if we're on, well, all of, not probably all of us, if we're honest, should have that happening. Next week, we'll start the book of Malachi. And Malachi is really about God's prompting of a rebellious people to turn back to him. It's a continual, persistent call of repentance to a rebellious and hardened group of people. Right? God's chosen people, and yet they're rejecting him. I don't think that you and I get beyond that or could ever move away from that. Or we live the gospel for repentance in our own lives, but also in others' lives. Okay, why? Well, here's the second thing. We live the gospel in failure. Wait, what? We live the gospel in failure, in your failure and in my failure, in the reality that no doubt I will fail you at some point in time, and you will also fail me at some point in time. But when we preach and live the gospel, we understand that our failure does not condition our acceptance or rejection of one another. Here's what I mean by that. God's love for you and I is not conditional. Amen? It's not tied to whether or not you and I obey. It's not tied to whether or not we have our act together. It's not, it's not prompted or preempted by, hey, you did well or you failed. It's not tied to those things. Right? Jesus says repeatedly to us, there's nothing that you can say or do that will change my love for you. That's his response to us. And in the same way that Christ has said that to you and I, where you and I would turn and say that to one another. And so we live the gospel in failure, not only in the fact that I want you to be gracious and forgiving of me when I fail, but that I'm willing to do the same for you. That when I'm, when I'm wronged, okay, listen, loved ones, when I'm wronged, my response, or when you're wronged, your response should be the fullness of the gospel. Okay, why? 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 Why that? Well, because that's the way that Jesus has responded to you and I. He's chosen to set his love on us. He's chosen to extend grace and forgiveness. He's chosen to extend mercy. And the truth is, the truth is when we look at failure, you can respond like Jesus did or you can respond like the Pharisees did. Remember in John 8, the adulterous woman? They catch her in her adultery and they drag her out and they're ready to stone her. Why they're going to stone her, not the guy, I'm not entirely sure about that, but they drag her out. And they're getting ready to stone her and write that great exchange that takes place. And Jesus' comment... Let him, let him who has no sin be the first to cast a stone. And I love how John writes that. It's like some of the older guys, they got it instantly. They're like, no, we're out, right? Dropped their rock and just started walking off. Some of the younger guys, it took them a few minutes to finally figure out, oh, wait, none of us are going to get to throw rocks at this lady because all of us have issues. And so then Jesus is left there with the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Do they condemn you? And she says, no, they're gone. And then he says two things. And, and as people, we tend to gravitate and really emphasize one or the other. I tell you, we've got we to emphasize both of the things that he says here. He says, neither do I condemn you. See, there's the grace. There's the forgiveness. There's the forbearance. There's the walking with. There's the, the, the coming alongside. And then what does he say next? Go and sin no more. 
I call you to live in a particular manner. This isn't just some free-for-all. You don't send your face off, come get the, the cheap grace, and then just keep doing No, 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 I'm calling you to change your life. So in the same way that, that Jesus responds to you and I in that manner, in total church and gospel community, that's how we respond to people who have wronged us. Doesn't mean that I'm not, that, that I'm not honest about hurts. Doesn't mean that I'm not honest about fears or angst or struggle. But it also means that this next thing, one, it's not conditioned. Our love for others is not conditioned on their behavior. And two, here's the third item, that we live the gospel by extending grace. We live the gospel by extending grace. We extend forgiveness. Now, forgiveness in its simplest sense is that I cancel a debt. That I recognize that when I wrong someone, there is a debt that is owed to them. And forgiveness is saying, you don't owe me anymore. I will release you from the debt. But see, one of the things, one of the things in our house, um, I, I, don't, I don't like our kids saying, I'm sorry. Because how does that typically play out with little kids? Like, um, so this happens in our house um, constantly. Uh, someone takes something, breaks something, hits someone, whatever. Say, okay, you need to go get right with your brother. You need to go get right with your sister. I'm sorry. What's the response of the kid? It's okay. Is it really? Is it really okay that he punched you in the face? Is it really okay that he broke your toy? Is it really okay that she destroyed that? No, it's not okay. It's not okay. Now you could say, Mike, that's just semantics, but see, I think it's something far deeper. Sorry just means that I know that you caught me or we acknowledge that there's some wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm owning it. When you go and you seek forgiveness from someone, you're saying, I know that I was wrong and I know that I owe you and so I'm here seeking to make it right. And then here's the beauty of that. When I go and seek forgiveness for someone, this is where the gospel really begins to flourish, loved ones. I put the ball in their court. And as the one who was wrong, now I get to model Jesus because I get to extend grace to those who have wronged me. See, that's what we really want our kids to understand. It's not so much the act of saying, I'm sorry, or forgive me, or the right words. It's understanding that I'm going to release someone from something. That I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to be ensnared by bitterness. I'm not going to be ensnared by, by hatred or malice or cynicism because I'm going to hold on to this sin. But that the fullness of the gospel moves me and prompts me to extend grace to those who have wronged me and to be right with them. So we live the gospel in repentance. We live it in failure. We live it to extend grace. And then here's the final aspect here. It's to remind us of our eternal hope in Jesus. It reminds us of our eternal hope in Jesus. Right? Part of living the gospel in the midst of all this failure and shortcoming and brokenness is that it points me to a time is coming when this will end. That you and I will not spend all of eternity in the brokenness. We will spend all of eternity in the fullness of all that Christ intended for you and I to live and function in. And so we preach the gospel, we live the gospel in ministry, in marriage, in friendship, in our community, in the church, in all of these things. Because we're looking to a day where Jesus will one day come and, and right all of the wrongs. Total church. God's word drives all that we do. We preach and live the gospel. Here's the third thing. Is we live in community. Total church lives in Community. Now, you know, what, you know what I love about living in community? I love getting to share life with people. You know what I despise about living in community? <laughs> Sharing life with people, right? It goes both ways. Sometimes, sometimes I just, man, leave me alone. Get away from me. 
Well, see, the truth is living in community, one, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But throughout the, the, the book of Acts, we've seen them work hard to do it well. Living in community is, is really, it's a lot like marriage. It's a lot like marriage. If you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to forbear, if you're willing to forgive, if you're willing to extend grace, if you're willing to um, uh, have repentance be common, it's fantastic. It's awesome. It's unbeatable. But if you're not willing to do those things, if you're not willing to forbear, if you're not willing to be patient, if you're not willing to extend grace, it's miserable. Right? That's biblical community. If we're not, well, that's not really biblical community if we're not doing those things. The total church lives in community. Here's uh, some both descriptions and, and uh, characteristics of what it is to live in community in the book of Acts. Of course, it, Acts 2, 42 through 47 is really the hallmark in all of the scriptures of what living in community looked like. And they're, they're sharing life together. They're, they're spending time together. They're worshiping together, studying the, the apostles' teaching. They're praying. They're engaging in communion together. All kinds of different things that take place there. We see a similar description at the end of Acts chapter 4 and the sharing of life with one another. And then some characteristics that begin to show up. Acts 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira? A part of living in community is your willingness to confront sin. I'm willing to speak the hard word into people's lives. Acts 6, part of living in community is I'm going to fulfill my ministry. I'm not going to be who you want me to be. You're not going to be who I want you to be. I'm going to be who God wants me to be. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Acts 9, I'm going to move close to people who maybe are people that I wouldn't typically or, or, or traditionally choose to move close to. And I'm speaking specifically of Ananias here being told to go meet Saul, the guy who hated Christians and imprisoned them. And God's saying, hey, go meet that guy. Not my first choice of people I'd want to move close to if I'm Ananias. And yet, it's part of biblical community. In Acts 10, going to people that we wouldn't choose to go to Peter going to the Gentiles. He probably would have chosen to take the gospel to anyone else. That's part of it. Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, this notion of part of living in community, it's not just what's best for me, it's what's best for all. It doesn't just revolve around me. And what we saw last week, Acts 28, as Paul's coming into Rome and some of the brothers go out to meet him. And it says, I love what it says, that when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So that's part of what community does for us, is it empowers us, it emboldens us, it gives us great courage to go forward. It lives in community. It, it prompts us to a number of different things. Just ask yourself, first of all, do you know that you need to be in community? Not, not just because I'm saying and not just because the church emphasizes this or pushes this. Do you understand that this is what God has called you and I to be? That God says, listen, you're not to go it alone. You're not to be isolated. You're not to be an island. You're not supposed to just try to do it all on your own. We're supposed to live in community. Are you aware of the biblical mandate of that? Second of all, are you, are you willing to work at living in community? Are you willing to work at this? Are you willing to strive for this? Do, do you recognize that we need each other? One of the things I was thinking about in this is, is when you choose to not live in community, I get cheated. See, it's not just yourself that you cheat. You cheat others. If I choose to not live in community, you get cheated. It's not just you. It's not just, well, Mike, I don't want to, or I don't like it, or I don't feel like it. 
Not only are you cheating yourself, but you begin to cheat others when you choose to remove yourself from community. So just ask yourself these questions. Who is it that I share life with? Who is it that I share my life with? Who is it that I'm walking with? Who's walking with me? Who am I walking with them? Who am I investing in? And who am I allowing to invest in me? If you have a hard time answering that, those questions, you probably aren't living in community. Now let me, let me just shamelessly here again, I have no problem plugging discipleship and the need of it here at Faith Church because, well, for the last six or seven months we've seen it played out in the book of Acts. But the importance of discipleship, the importance of sharing life with each other. But let me, let me press in on this just a little bit further. And, and I want to make the distinction here between sharing life with each other and doing a Bible study together. Right? Because it's one thing to like, well, I go to Bible study and we study the word. But there's no other aspect of life that we share with each other. There's no other engagement. There's no other involvement. There's no other walking or sharing. They don't know what's really going on in my marriage. They have no idea what's really going on with my kids. They don't know that I hate my job. They don't know any of that stuff. We just kind of talk about some scriptures and call it a day. And I get to do the spiritual checklist thing of Bible study. Check. Now contrast that with what we would call a biblical community, what we would call missional living, what we would call, you can, there's all kinds of different words for it. But this idea that the whole of my life, the whole of my life is part of me living on mission for Jesus. That my job, that my spouse and my family, if that's applicable, that the ministry that God has me in, that my time, my energy, my money, the events that I'm a part of, that the whole of my life falls under the umbrella of being on mission for Jesus, of, of living in gospel community, of longing to see the kingdom expanded. That, loved ones, that is what we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. But far too often in the church today in America in the 21st century, we do the compartmentalized checklist Christianity. Got the Bible study, check, going to go do my own thing over here. And we break it out into compartments. We break it down into little subsets. And it's like, I got, I got my um, spiritual life over here. I got my hobbies over here. I got my family over here. I got my financial investment stuff here. I got my sports stuff here. I got, and we just kind of break it down. And then when life falls apart for the life of us, we can't figure out why that is because we fail to live on mission. We fail to be about what Christ has called us to be. Right? The book of Acts teaches us to live in community, right, in biblical community, so that we can go live in our communities where God has placed us, and we can be on mission. Now, keep that in mind. Here's the final thing, and we won't spend much time on this one, but it really does play into this notion of playing into community. I think for, for me, this was the most profound thing that I learned moving through the book of Acts. But total church, gospel community, here's what it is. It's a long one, so bear with me. But in gospel community or in total church, we know, okay, what do we know? Well, we know a number of things, but here's one of the things that we know. That God allows difficulty so that at a particular time, God can demonstrate his power as a platform for the gospel. Let me just say that again. We know that God allows difficulty 
so that at a particular time, God can demonstrate his power as a platform for the gospel. Now, if I get living in gospel community, if I understand what it is uh, to be on mission, if I understand what it is to be in, in gospel community, to live that way, I can press into the struggles, I can press into the hardship, I can press into the difficulty because I know that God's gonna do something with this. He's not wasting this. This isn't some imposition or inconvenience that God, I just have to endure so I can get to something better. It's that God is doing something specific with this. But listen, and this is where, this is where the, the, the thing gets really, really divided with the community piece. If I'm just doing Bible study, if I'm just doing a prayer time, if I'm just doing some spiritual thing, but that's just one aspect of my life, it doesn't fall under the umbrella of the whole of missional living. When the difficulty, when the trial, when the struggle comes, and loved ones, they will come, no doubt. I don't see it through the lens of God's using this. I don't see this as a platform. I don't see this as an opportunity. What I see it is as some kind of imposition or maybe even the fact that God has failed me. That is the danger in living in isolation. Is I fail to recognize the whole of what God is doing is pushing and prompting and moving us to this place where the gospel is all encompassing in our lives. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about this truth this week and, and, and the, the reality of the whole of the book of Acts, right? Every time they went somewhere, every time they ran into some kind of difficulty, some kind of struggle, some kind of imposition. Now, now this, this, doesn't, this, this reality doesn't free us from pain or fear or loss or things of that nature, but it does help us to frame things. And I was looking back over some of the old passages, looking at back over some of the old sermon notes and, and specifically in Acts 4, right after that man's been healed, and they're all bent out of shape about it. And really where this principle be, uh, came into focus for us. I was thinking about uh, Lynn Nanneman. Lynn, where, there you are. And you remember that Lynn? We did an interview with Lynn. If you don't know Lynn's story, here's Lynn's story. In short, August of 2013, fell off a ladder, utterly obliterated the lower uh, half of one of his legs. And for a year, all kinds of surgeries and treatments and medications and things of that nature. And it was, all, it was like a, a year to the day almost, right? Or like within a day of the year, uh, they amputated the lower half of, uh, is it your left leg? Right leg. Here's what was crazy about that. That guy was sharing the gospel all the time. His wife was sharing the gospel all the time. Uh, Lynn and Denise own a few Snap Fitnesses, and uh, Becky and I work out there. I was sharing the gospel in Snap Fitness because people started asking about Lynn, and I'm like, well, hey, let me tell you, because I, I can tell you what's going on. I know what's going on in his life, and here's what he'd want you to know. Something that anyone could look at and go, I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't think Lynn would have ever chosen uh, to have that happen. And yet, uh, there's no denying, right, Lynn and Denise, just the incredible ways that God used that in your lives. Becky and I have some neighbors. Uh, they have a 16, 17-year-old son. He has this horrendous form of cancer. The numbers on it are just atrocious. Uh, I mean, you've, you've got a better shot of not making it than making it. Uh, they amputated a good part of his leg. I think they removed a good part of maybe the entirety of one of his lungs. They're sharing the gospel like crazy. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't choose that for my child. Who knows whether or not he's going to make it. But see, there's a huge distinction between um, God owes me and I live uh, and God lives and exists for my well-being or I exist for God's well-being. 
and when I, when I frame those, thing prop, those things properly, when I live in community, I got people speaking into my life, and then I understand that God's going to allow difficulties, he's going to allow hardship, he's going to allow struggle, because at a particular point in time, he's going to demonstrate his power as a platform for the gospel. I don't look at those things as impositions. I don't look at them as some punishment. I don't look at them as some horrible, terrible thing. I go, hey, here's an opportunity that God is giving me to share what only he can do and the ways that only he can work. See, it gives us an eternal hope to our issues and our struggles. And it doesn't reduce them, but it does frame them in a way where it's no longer just some struggle, but now they have this eternal substance to them. And I look at the whole of my life and I look at the particular place that God has you. And so just think to yourself right now, right now, where does God have you? Maybe you can think of some really difficult thing, some really hard thing, some, some just um, incredibly burdensome thing pressing down on you. And you're like, God, why? God, why? God, why? And God's going, I'm telling you why. I'm setting you up. Loved ones, I'm setting you up. You can't see it yet. You can't know it yet. But the time is coming. And when it comes, it's going to be clear as day. But until that day comes, I need you to trust me. I need you to know that I know what I'm doing. And when I get the whole of missional living, I can endure the struggle, I can endure the trial, I can endure the difficulty because I know that that day's coming where God, you're going to let me be platformed for your sake, for your glory, for your name's sake. It's what it is to know that God is allowing difficulty for this reason. Total church, God's word drives all that we do. We preach and live the gospel. We live in community. And we know why God allows difficulty. Because he's going to platform us for the gospel. By God's grace, by God's grace, let's be a total church. Let's let faith church be a total church. Let's be gospel community. Let's be on mission. Let's be about the kingdom. Let's move forward the way that Jesus wants us to move forward. And whether it's next week, next month, or 80 years from now, let's each of us finish well. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.